Mark chapter 10, let's begin in verse 32. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, And their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now they came to Jericho. As he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging, And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, be of good cheer, rise, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. Let's pray together. Father, we just submit our lives to you. We thank you for the preeminence of your word and the place that you've put it in our lives. Thank you that we get our lives refined and and changed and shaped and molded and fashioned by you through your Holy Spirit in your word. We pray, God, now that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. God, thank you that we have the privilege of going through all of these verses together as a family. We yield our hearts to you, Lord. We recognize that we can be deceived thinking that you have ordained this supremely for us to gain more knowledge when you're looking for obedience, Lord. Help us to not forget what we look like when we look in the mirror of your word. Help us to look at these things uh, related to what we're not obeying, not what we agree with. Thank you that you measure spiritual maturity appropriately, God. Help us to do the same. We commit it to you in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We are fast approaching the end of the Lord Jesus' public ministry. He's been steadfastly facing Jerusalem, as we'll be told in Luke when we get there. And we began in Caesarea Philippi, 
teaching them or helping them see or speaking of his coming death upon the cross. He's trying to prepare his disciples for his departure, for his death. He's focusing on helping them. He knows it'll be difficult. He knows that they'll be scattered. They know, he knows that they will be tempted to forsake him completely and all of those things, but he is helping them with that. And so they have been with him for all this time. He's been teaching them and so forth, and it's way better than a seminary or any uh, f- you know, formal schooling and all of that. They lived with him. They ate with him. They slept there. They, they saw his miracles firsthand. They served alongside. It's very practical. And so this, this greatest, the greatest thing that they could ever experience is to be with him. And now they're going to be weaned off of him and, he, and especially after he raises from the dead and he appear, he's going to appear to them intermittently, preparing them for, to be completely without him in, in the sense of his physical body in their presence. So we're getting closer and closer to the end. He's approaching Jerusalem here, but yet he still is who he is. Look at verse 32. It says, Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them. And I want to stop there. And notice it says that they go up to Jerusalem. Did you see that? Going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jerusalem was about 2,550 feet in elevation. So no matter where you were coming to Jerusalem from in Israel, you'd be going up to it because it's on a mountain, a set of mountains there, Mount Moriah. And so they said they're going up to Jerusalem and we're told, and Jesus was going before them. So picture the scene here. Jesus is leading the way. Often they would walk, I'm sure, with him, like in line with him as they're walking along the road. This is a little bit different. Jesus was going before them. And so they were, they were not kind of up with him. They were letting him go ahead a little bit. And so we'll be told in a moment that Jesus is going to take them, the 12, aside. So that shows us that because especially with the feast that I, we talked about last week, this big feast. And this main road there is on the east side of Israel there, and it went north and south. You could go all the way up around the other side of the Dead or the uh, Sea of Galilee and so forth, and then you would come down to Jer- uh, Jericho, and then Jer- Jericho was one of the last big cities that you would hit before you went up, started really climbing. When you go to Israel and you go that route, and you, and you start going, you go past where Jer- uh, Jericho is, and then you start really going into the mountains. And, and then you start ascending up to Jerusalem there. And so they're not alone because of this feast and because he has to t- take them aside to say something to them that tells us that there's a crowd around that's they're, that they're joining with as they're moving uh, towards Jerusalem. And he continues in verse 32, we're told, and they were amazed, and as they followed, they were afraid. Why were they afraid? Why were they um, why were they amazed? What was going on? He was leading them somewhere. I mean, was he, did they sense a change in him? He's starting to make his ascent going towards Jericho and all of that, and, and, and he's going to Jerusalem. Is there something, a different way that he was, how he walked or his countenance or how he uh, talked with them? Or I, don't, I have no idea what was going on there, but they were amazed. They weren't just amazed all the time. This is for something very specific. They were amazed, but yet they were afraid. It's like they knew something was 
happening. And I believe it could be those things, something that they saw or some sense that they had and all of that. But I believe it's more likely, at least in addition to those things, if they were the case, that they realize where they're going and where they're going to Jerusalem. I mean, they were commanded to go to, to there three, three times a year at least for three different feasts there. So they were commanded to do it. But the disciples knew that there was incredible persecution going on. Jesus, we've seen Jesus go through Tyre and Sidon. We've seen him go on the, the east side of the, of the Jordan River there, to the area of the Decapolis, the ten Greek cities. He's, he's, he's purposely avoided because the, the, the religious leaders and all of that because they're ramping up their organized opposition. This is the year of opposition, the, the third year of his public ministry where they're uh, coming against him. And so it's likely that the disciples knew going to Jerusalem here um, that that spells trouble. Not necessarily that they caught on and believed the two other times where he talked about this, that he was going to be betrayed into the hands of, of men. So we're, we're told that this is happening in their lives. And he continues in verse 32. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Now verses 33 and 34, uh, Jesus is going to tell them the third time about the cross and his resurrection. He's already told him twice. I believe it's in John, Mark eight thirty one and John uh, or Mark nine thirty one. He's already told him two times. So there he comes and tells him the third time in verse thirty three. He says, "Behold," and beho- the word "behold" means carefully consider or pay attention. It says, "Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem." Notice the word "we" there. We are going up to Jerusalem. You know, you can be afraid about where we're going or unsure or whatever to the disciples, but it's going to happen. I'm not just going by myself. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. So this is the first time, and this is now three times he's told them since Caesarea Philippi, when he began to start telling them about what was going to happen to him. This is the third time, but this is the first time of the times where he's mentioned that to them, that he's telling them that they're going to Jerusalem for this, that telling them that Jerusalem is, in, is involved. And notice he also says, and they will condemn him to death. Now, Jews could not execute. Rome had taken away that power 20 years before this time. In fact, the chief priests were recorded, you know, Jewish historians recorded them as basically talking about that the, that the, um, that the word of God was broken because of this. Because in uh, Genesis 49, it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. And they interpreted that this scepter was the right to rule and have the right to administer the death penalty as the, as the book of Moses or the law of Moses prescribed. So they were grieving about this 20 years earlier and that this, that this um, capacity to, to, to do executions was removed from them. Now, they ignored this. The religious leaders hated Stephen so much, and we'll see that when we get to the book of Acts, that they did it anyway. They didn't care. They just could not take it. They were cut to the heart by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, illuminating the truth of the Word of God and their guilt related to the, the Messiah being cut off and their part in it. And so they did it anyway. But 20 years earlier, when the capital punishment was taken away, the Lord Jesus was there. They just didn't know it. He was in Nazareth. He was being trained up under Joseph. 
the carpenter's son, he, was, he had arrived and so forth. So this was a big deal for them to, for him to say, condemn him to death. The disciples would, if they could even grasp it, which we know that they were having trouble grasping it, it would be hard for them to think it's even possible because how can that happen? How can the chief priests, how can the scribes and all those, those people that have been coming against him, how could they possibly pull that off? Because they have no right to, to engage in, in capital punishment there. But Jesus continues to get specific in verse 34. Look with me there. It says, And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise from the dead. All three times that he warned them, he included the resurrection. Because, of course, that needed to be communicated. That's the truth. That's Psalm 16. It was predicted a thousand years before the birth of Christ that, that, that uh, God would not let his Holy One see corruption. So he, he mentions this again, but he adds, not only does he add Jerusalem in this third time of warning his disciples and predicting what's going to happen to him, but also this is the first time that he mentions mocking, scourging, and spitting. Never mentioned that before. If you look in Mark, you see the previous two times he was very general and vague about it. That he'd be betrayed into the, the hands of sinful men. He didn't talk about the specific uh, you know, uh, suffering and, and itemize the things he'd be going through like he does here. Mocking, scourging, and spitting. And it makes you just think of how gracious God is with what he reveals to us. You know, people can only take so much news at a time. I don't know if you ever noticed that. When someone wants to tell you something that's hard to hear, sometimes they do it in stages where they'll reveal a little bit and a little bit more and a little bit more and so forth because we can't handle it so, so much all at the same time. That's what that's the Lord Jesus is doing with preparing the disciples for his death and his resurrection. They couldn't handle it. They were thinking of a political Messiah, as we've noted over and over again. The thought of, of him being killed and, and dying just doesn't compute because they knew that there were scriptures related to the Messiah sitting on the, the throne of David forever. So they can't reconcile those things. The only way you could is if there were either two Messiahs or he would come twice. And it was the latter. He's going to come twice. And so uh, he says to them, you know, all these things, mocking, scourging, spitting, and all of that. And, and, but we're told in Luke that they still didn't get it. Now, that doesn't surprise us, right? that they still didn't get it, because we don't get it. Many times when he's trying to tell us something, we don't get it. And so um, now we really see it in verse 35, because notice it says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Oh, that's all? <laughs> not asking a lot. Uh, whatever, we, whatever we ask. It's not, it's not asking too much, is it? See, they still had this earthly hope. They still were thinking of political Messiah. But more than that, they were still self-consumed. Here Jesus is about to go to his death. He's about to suffer. He's loving enough to be able to warn them and help them and incrementally reveal a little bit more information at a time so that they could receive it well. He's, he's have attention to detail related to that. He brought Peter, James, and John up on the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, which we saw, revealed his glory, all those things. He's doing so much in their lives to help them, to serve them, to prepare them for his departure because he cares for them. Not only that is he's healing, as we're going to see in a moment, but he's healing, he's delivering, he's teaching, he's being other-centered, he's giving his life away, he's serving, all these things. And, and he's, then at his time where, remember, he's, still, he's human too. He's not just God, he's human too. And he's dealing with this fact of what's going to happen and what he's going to suffer and all of that. And he's bearing his heart to them. And then 
can you do whatever we ask? <laughs> I mean, just talk about a whole nother, not just a whole nother world, a whole nother universe of thinking and, and not being on the same page at all and thinking of themselves. You have to be careful about how we approach the Lord in terms of petition and, and asking things. He, he's our father. He's our daddy. And he wants to bless his children. But we have to be tuned into what he's saying to us and the, what he's trying to get through to us. So often people, they miss what God's trying to get through to them because they're so focused on having the most prosperous life as the world defines prosperity. And they're not thinking about the greater, more wonderful thing that God's trying to do in their lives in, in terms of holiness. Because we don't value holiness how God values holiness. He sees it as a total blessing. And we see it as restriction. It's not restriction. It's being who God's called us to be and being like God. Holiness is being like, like God himself. He says, be holy for I am holy. It's having his character. It's not a bunch of do's and don'ts and restrictions and ruin my fun and all those things. It's being like him and it's a privilege to live a life of holiness. It's an absolute privilege. So he calls us to that, but he's, they're saying, we want you to do for us whatever we ask instead of thinking of others. Now, Matthew tells us, as we went through, remember this, we, we dealt with this before, that, the, that they got their mom involved in this. Mom went first, Salome. Many people believe that Salome was Mary's sister and that uh, James and John were cousins of the Lord Jesus from an earthly standpoint. We don't know that for sure. We know Salome is mentioned, and you can put the connect the dots, but we don't know for sure. But they, if it, that is the case, they're trying to get this little family connection, you know, this nepotism and, you know, uh, we need to keep it all in the family and all of that and, and, and securing these spots. And they're thinking, you know what? He really loves our mom. So we're going to have our mom go. Let's do that. Let's have our mom, let's have mom go and ask and everything. And he's not going to be able to resist her. And so um, we'll get this and so forth. And so we, we're not told that in this passage, but we're told that in, in, in Matthew. Now, notice he doesn't say, come on, guys, aren't you listening to me? That's what I would say. I'd say, hey, what are you thinking? What planet are you on? I've just been bearing my heart. I've been telling you I'm going to the cross and I'm going to suffer and all these things. And here you are thinking about securing a place for you and, and, and having this great, this great place in, in the kingdom. Remember, they've already been fighting about who's going to be the greatest. And he overheard them. And he, confront, he confronted them and they didn't want to answer because they knew. And he's already talked to them about being a servant and what it means to be great. And yet, they're still not getting it. And I would say, hey, check your brain out. You know, I mean, you just, you're shocked. But he doesn't do it. Notice he says, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? That's not what we would expect, is it? That's not how we would expect him to answer. And they said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. Oh, is that all? You know, when you try to secure your own place, it usually includes making sure other people get bumped out. It's really difficult to secure a great place without bumping other people out. When you're in line... You know, you're at the amusement park and you're trying to get a, a better place in line or whatever if you cut in line. When you cut in line, that's really what they're trying to do, <laughs> cutting in line. And cutting in line, you're bumping someone else out. You can't independently secure a better place without bumping someone else out at the same time. So automatically they're saying, we don't care about where the other 10 go, <laughs> what their place is. You, you work that out, Jesus, with them. We're, we're securing our place. We want to be at the right hand and the left hand of you in your glory. 
And then verse 38 says, But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And you would think that they'd go, Oh, whoa, no way. I could never, no way. That's, I could not, we couldn't do that. There's, yeah, we're sorry. We should, what were we thinking? We shouldn't even have brought that up. Please forgive us, Lord, for even talking about that. We have no, no, nope, that's not what they said. We are able. Verse 39, we're able. Yep, we can do it. Talk about pride. I mean, come on, we are able. You know what that means to be able to drink of the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? The word baptism means immersion. And a cup has to do with your portion. So he's saying that what I've been assigned and my, my portion of what I go through related to suffering, are you able to be baptized and are you able to experience the, the, that and you're able to sacrifice to the level that I'm sacrificing and all those things? And they're saying we are able in that way. They had no idea what they were saying. I mean, Jesus could have laughed so hard right there. You're just thinking he's going to go, <laughs> You're able. I love that. Can you tell the other guys what you just said? Because they need a good laugh about right now. And, and, but he doesn't do that. He's, but then he says to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized with you, uh, all, um, that I am baptized with you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. So they will have suffering. They won't have his exact cup. They won't have his exact baptism. They will, Obviously, no man can fully go through what he went through or suffer to the extent to which he suffered, but they will have their own suffering. They will, they will suffer greatly. James, James was put to death early on, one of the, the first of the 12 to, to die. And then John, they tried to execute him by burning him in oil in his, when he was elderly, but it didn't, didn't work. And he ended up dying of old age and, and because he stayed faithful to the end all the way to the cross and all of that. But he still suffered greatly in all of that. So he says, you will indeed suffer, but not to the extent that you think. And that place that you're asking for is not mine to give. It's, and it's, someone, it's someone else's. It's, it's, the Father's going to take care of that and so forth. And even if you were to get, to, to get that, it would be as a result of God's sovereignty and his His. You know, who knows who's going to sit at his right hand and his left. Knowing the Lord Jesus, he would have a lot of people rotate in and out and be blessed as a result of that. I mean, I mean, he just is so, you know, equitable and, and gracious. I mean, who knows? It might be, we think the people that are going to be, we think of Billy Graham, Franklin Graham, Greg Laurie, Chuck Smith. We think of all these people, and we don't see that God measures things completely different than how we measure things. And it's about faithfulness. It's not about converts. It's not about numbers. It's not about all those things. Those are an indicator of fruit, of course. But if, if the issue is faithfulness. I mean, we might see a little old lady that just prayed in her prayer closet her whole life and no one knew about it up at Jesus' right hand or his left hand. And, and so that's the, that's the beautiful thing about faithfulness is that all of us can be faithful to whatever he's called us to be. And Jesus said, you know, when we, when we stand before him, that he wants to say, well done, good and Successful servant, uh, gifted servant, talented, educated. Nope. Well done, good and faithful servant. Faithfulness is the issue. And all of us can be faithful by the grace of God. Now, this didn't, make, this didn't sit too well with the gang. Look at verse 21. And when they, the ten heard it, 
they, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. Notice there's the 10. It was the 12. <laughs> now it's the 10 and the 2 because of what they said there. And, and so they're all greatly displeased. Matthew tells us there was a great, great indignation over this. This really got the other apostles upset because they were putting themselves first. And they likely were partly upset because they didn't think of it. You know, I mean, hey, that's a good idea. Why don't we get our moms involved and all that? Yeah, but it didn't work. See that? Well, yeah, that's true. Maybe it worked with my mom, but not their mom. I mean, who, I mean, they're just like us. They're going to be getting carnal and, and arguing and all this stuff. But I bet you there's a lot of flesh being exercised there um, when they're greatly dis, displeased with James and John. Verse 42. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So he's, I'm going to stop there. He, he, he's not disparaging desiring to be great. You know, sometimes people want to be great, and they want to be great because they want to meet some need in their life, and they're trying to find fulfillment and all those things. That's not the, desire, the reason or, or the proper motivation to be great. We should want to be great for God's glory. We should want to be great to, to bless his heart by our, us bearing fruit and, and all of those things. But, he, but he, he says, you know, it's fine. Just you have to use my definition of great. <laughs> that's, the, that's the one thing. You gotta, well, what I call great, that's how you want, need to be great, is what I define as great. And look at, he uses the Gentiles. We're Gentiles, most of us. He uses them as an example. These rulers, these, those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles, lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So there's, there's two verbs there, lord and exercise. So when you lord over somebody, you're, you're basically wanting them to serve you. And there are times where, of course, there's authority and there's all those things. But what they would do is they would abuse that authority and they would control people and go past what it means to be properly in submission to somebody. And they would force people to do things and they would put pressure on them. And it was all about getting something. You know, false teachers and false prophets, they all have an inward focus. They all see the, the, the you know, people as a means to an end. And they try to fleece the flock and, and get from them. And a true shepherd is giving and serving and caring for people because he cares for them and loves God instead of trying to get something for himself. I saw, I get these crazy ads on Facebook and they're, I don't know if you ever get these crazy t-shirts that are ridiculous. I can't believe anyone buys them. But one of them said, I'm a pastor for, not for the income, but for the outcome. And I thought that was great. I, 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 there, I, need, I know some guys on TV that need to get that shirt. And maybe that would have changed a little bit of their behavior um, with them. So, but he says, don't lord it over them. Don't exercise authority over them. And then he tells us how, how to do it. He says, verse 43 and 44, Yet it shall, be, it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. Notice the word all at the end of verse 44. I can be a slave to some people. It's hard to be a slave to all. I want to pick who I'm going to be a slave to. I have to get along with them. I have, they have to not irritate me. They have to not you know, get on my nerves or whatever. It has to be at moments where I prefer to be a slave. 
You know, if it's in my calendar, this is, okay, yeah, this is good. Slave time, it's good. I got an hour. I'll be a slave for an hour. And then after that, I'm, I'm, I got my own life and all of that. And, and you know, you want to have it to be convenient for us. That's just our flesh. We want to serve when it's convenient. The people that God uses so much are people that are just available to serve anytime God calls them to serve. When they recognize that their time is not their time, it's God's time. And their resources are God's resources and all these things. Their relationships that they have, God's ordained. And the needs that people have that are in their life, they need to be sensitive and ask God if they're supposed to meet those needs and be led by the Spirit. So we're called to serve all and be a slave to all. The theme of Mark we talked about at the beginning was that Jesus is a suffering servant. It emphasizes the works of, of the Messiah, his power and all of that, but it also talks about him being a servant. And, and Mark really focuses in on this. You know, for us, we need to recognize that ser- servanthood is just, it's not going through a role and acting a certain way. You know, sometimes in, when I used to oversee the school of ministry and the one that's coming in the fall here, sometimes I talk about servanthood. And I point to my wife as the ultimate example in my home, not me, but... Um, uh, she's an amazing servant. But I talk about what's the difference between acting like a servant and being a servant? Because there's, there's two different things. You can act like a servant, and then you can be a servant. And the difference is, is that act, acting like a servant is not believing in your heart that it's appropriate that you're doing what you're doing, that it's really not fitting that I'm doing this, but because I'm doing it for whatever other reason, to get something or to get someone's approval, I'm going to do this thing. You're not being servant-hearted at that moment. You're acting like a servant. You're, you're being a hypocrite in the sense that you're pretending to be something that you're not. To be a true servant is the result of God's working in my life to where I recognize that I truly do belong doing this thing. Whatever it is, cleaning a bathroom or, or going to the store to get more formula in the middle of the night uh, to, to get a burpee. Um, they still call them burpees or, you know, the, maybe I'm thinking exercise, but, um, you know. <laughs> You know, the, there's all these things that you can get in the middle of the night when the baby's up and all of that and when it's not convenient and all those things and you're trying to find what's best for the other person and it's not a convenient time. You know, that, that's what being a servant. When you say, I belong doing this, this is fitting. Sometimes when people have, you know, they've waited after church a long time and I have the opportunity to clean up or whatever when I'm not talking with someone, people from other churches have gotten offended that, that I shouldn't be doing that. I'm like, why shouldn't I be doing that? I, I'm, just, I'm just a servant like anybody else is in, in the church. And, but they, they've, they've created this whole other thing that, you know, this, you, you, once you get to a certain level, all, then you don't do that stuff anymore. Well, Jesus didn't know anything about that level. <laughs> he, he didn't know about it then because we're going to see when we get to the Gospel of John in John 13 that he, he washes feet. That was the lowest position in a home. The lowest servant would wash someone's feet when they came in. It was like offering them something to drink when they come in and you're showing hospitality and all that. You'd wash their feet. They wore sandals. Everything was dusty and all of that. And he does that. And Peter is so offended. that He's like, you're not going to wash my feet. And, and, and so that's what, who Jesus is. He's a servant. We need to recognize what is best for somebody else. I'm going to make someone else's life better. I'm going to anticipate their needs. I'm going to get my focus off myself. And especially in a marriage and in a home, there's so many opportunities to be a servant. Sometimes people want to serve in the church, but they don't want to serve in their family. They don't want to serve in their home. 
They don't want to be an example of someone that serves. They don't want to serve their kids. They don't want to do those things. And, and, and that's the place you're going to make the biggest impact in your family is being a servant all the time. So there's nothing wrong with desiring to be great. It has to be for the right motivation. But God's definition of someone great is someone that serves everybody, not just any, just who we prefer and not just on our timetable, but any time God calls us to do it. And then he gets even more specific in verse 45. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for, for many. We can't be like Jesus if we're not a servant because Jesus is a servant. You can't say, I'm like Jesus, but not serve at all because Jesus is a servant. That's who he is. And it's a joy. It's not a have to. It's a get to. And sometimes people go years in the church without realizing the blessing of being able to serve and give our lives away. And, and, and they don't, when they finally realize that, their whole life changes. I grew exponentially when I started serving, when I started caring for God's people, when I started using my gifts and all of that. I grew exponentially, but it wasn't supremely for me. It was supremely that God was blessed because he calls everybody in the body of Christ to serve at some, in some capacity. may not be here on Sundays. Maybe the body of Christ in another church or another ministry or whatever there's all different ways that god can call us to serve and and place us in different areas of ministry and all of that but we have to be if we're going to be like jesus we have to serve it's really important verse 46 now they came to jericho and as he went out of jericho with his disciples and a great multitude blind bartimaeus the son of timaeus sat by the road begging now, there are other Gospels where it talks about them when they came to Jericho, not went out of Jericho. And people like to point, point out that fact and try to say that there's still some discrepancy in the Word of God. And I want you to know the answer to that. The answer is there were two Jerichos. There was an old Jericho that was the traditional site. There was a newer Jericho. And so that's, that's how that's, that's answered. The point is he's going to heal Bartimaeus. And we see that in verse 47. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. When, you, when you're desperate, you don't care. You're not worried about what people think. You, you're not worried about the proper uh, way of doing things and all the tradition and all these things. You're just desperate. He knows this is his chance. We've heard so many things about this man. In fact, he calls him Son of David, which is a messianic title. And, and so he's heard a lot about him, this rabbi, and he's not going to be quiet. No one can get him to be quiet. And I think it's, it's good for us to see that people that have needs and they're expressing those things to God and they're, he's saying, have mercy on me, which speaks of his faith. The fact that the, the Messiah could have mercy on him. He may have knew all of this prophecies in, in the Old Testament about the Messiah healing and Isaiah and other places being a healer and all of that. And he places his faith in him and, and he's just loud, loud, loud. Nobody could get him to be quiet. You don't care. And, and it could have been any need. It didn't have to be blindness. It could have been any need. He was desperate and he wasn't going to be shushed. <laughs> and then verse 49, we're told, so Jesus st- stood still and commanded him to be called and you know, he hears every one of our times, our cries that we make to him in faith. He hears every single one of them. He's interceding. We've already sang about it. 
Do you realize the planning that goes into preparing songs and how it relates to the passage and all of that? And Dave prays and goes to the Lord and all that. You may not have noticed, but it's, it's prayed over. And we already talked about him being our high priest and having compassion for us and all that. And here we see this man here, and he's desperate, and he has, cries out to God, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. So for us, as we bring our needs before him, as we cry out to him in our desperation, even when we're not desperate, when we're just crying out to him, he notices, he cares. We're told that he makes intercession for us. And, and he's our great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because in all points he was tempted as we are, but yet without sin. And he wants us to go boldly into the throne of grace, grow boldly because it's a gracious throne that we're approaching. So whatever need you have, bring it to him, cry out to him, be honest with him, have mercy on me. And it's like as if he stands still, but he's already there. He's already there praying for us and it gets his attention. Then he continues, Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer. Rise. He is calling you. So they they warn him to be quiet, and then they say, Be of good cheer. He's calling. What happened to that attitude? Man, that attitude was quick. You know, to be of good cheer, he's, he's, he's calling you. And then verse 50, we're told, And throwing aside his garment. Now this is interesting because this would be his cloak. He would... It would be his outer garment. He would sleep with it many times. It would keep him warm. He would use it as a way to, to beg and all of that. And he throws it aside, his garment. And talk about a contrast to the rich young ruler that we saw who went away sad when, when Jesus told him he needs to sell everything he had, exposing uh, an, an idol that he had in his heart. And he, had, he went away sad. This man's throwing everything aside. Nothing's even done for him yet it, besides the Lord Jesus calling him and calling him to himself and all of that. And he throws that aside, says that he rose, and it, that literally means to spring. To sp- he jumped up quick, really fast, and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. Jesus wants us to articulate our needs to him. Jesus knew what he wanted. Jesus needed wanted him to share that. He wanted him to articulate. And it just speaks to the importance of prayer, to ask for prayer for, from other people, but to speak those things out in prayer to God and, and, and be bold that he wants to hear. Jesus wants to hear us communicate to him what, what we want him to do for us. This man's desperate. He's wanting mercy. He's not wanting preeminence or position like, like the apostles were that back a few minutes before this. He's just wanting to be touched. He's wanting to be healed. And Jesus asks, he wants him to articulate, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man answered, Rabboni, may I receive my sight. The only other time Rabboni is used is by Mary Magdalene in the Gospels. And she said it. And it literally means, it's an endearing term, it's my master, my precious. And it's a very intimate term. It's, it's some, you would never say it to a rabbi if you didn't have a close relationship with that rabbi. But if you have a close relationship it's a really, really informal way of saying teacher as, as an expression of your intimacy with that, with that teacher. And here this man says that. He's already endeared deeply to the Lord Jesus, and he doesn't even know him in the sense of having a long history with him or anything like that. He knows he's the son of David. He knows he has the capacity to have mercy on him, 
He knows all those things. He knows what he's heard and all of that. He knows his heart because he stopped everything and said, bring him to me. He already knows a lot about Jesus without ever having spent all these years with him like the disciples and all of that. And he says, uses this word, uh, Rabboni, and says that I may receive my sight. Verse 52. Then Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. That Jesus points out the man's faith to the man. He wants this man to know that your faith in me is, was, in part, it was part of this whole thing that happened. And it encourages us. And again, we've seen it so many times throughout the, <laughs> the Gospels that he wants us to honor him with our faith. What is faith? The false teachers teach that faith is a force. It's like conductible, like electricity and all of that. And, and, and it's simple trust in God. That's what faith is. We don't want to have faith in our faith. We want to have faith in God. So we want to have trust in Him. But it's trusting Him that, that He can, and oftentimes, as by the Spirit, He may express to Him that He will do it because he's, He has that, you have that faith and you, He's revealed that to you. And, and that's how God works. He works, the, 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 the just shall live by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him, we're told. We're learning that in the Modesto home group. We're learning all about faith and all of that. And that's been the theme. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. The just shall live by faith. We need to honor him with our trust. And so what faith is, a step of faith, people talk about that a lot, a step of faith is not just going out and doing something, hoping God will bless it, and seeing if he'll, 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 he'll do something in that step of faith. A step of faith is hearing God speak. It's actually reactionary. It's hearing God speak, go do this, or whatever he tells you to do, and then you, you act in obedience. You respond and honor him with obedience to that, not knowing how he's going to do it. It's the same way with this whole building situation. We have no idea how we're going to pay for all those renovations. I have no idea. We don't have any money. But God said, I'm leading you there. And so we're going to see the glory of God as he provides supernaturally because as Pastor Chuck made famous, where God guides, God provides. And it's not any more difficult for God that it's a building than it is something very, really small. So he's stretching our faith. We're going to see the glory of God. He, we're going to see him provide. We're going to see him come through. And, but we're hearing him speak, go here. We're going to go there, and we're going to watch what he does. That's the picture of the Christian life. Our whole life is a life of faith, everything about it. And we like to walk by sight and, and say that it's faith and have everything all planned out and lined up ahead of time before we step out. Sometimes God shows us those, some of those things, but oftentimes he just says, I want you to go do that. And then you need to step out in obedience to that and watch what only he can do. You know, this, there was times where he had, you know, Moses stretch out his staff and, and, and the Dead Sea, or the uh, Red Sea rather, parted. But when Joshua came into the promised land with the Jordan, God told him to have the priest get it, start getting into the water before he parted it. See, it was stretching. It was one little thing after another. It was, it was I'm going to lead you to do this, and then I'm going to stretch your faith, and I'm going to lead. Because if you're a leader, and you're leading millions of people into the promised land, and, I mean, getting into the river and then having it, nothing happen, I mean, that's like a nightmare for them because it would erode a confidence in their leadership, and they had to make sure they heard from the Lord. So God stretches us. He stretches our faith. And so don't be surprised if he puts you in impossible situations. 
I've, I've experienced it myself, and I've, I've helped people through it too. To recognize it, they're stumbled by being put into an impossible situation. And they're, they're stumbled by that. And well, God, why would God do that and all of that? Because he wants to show you what he's going to do. But you couldn't see him miraculously come through if you were never in the position in the first place. So he's loving enough to put us in those situations where he has to come through. And, and so often we see that modeled in, in the Bible. And so he's not going to change now. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's going to lead his people in that life of faith and so forth. And he's going to get glory as we depend upon him. This man, Bartimaeus, and it's recorded that, and we don't know if this is true, but it, it, that he actually became very prominent in the church. And that's why he names his name. Normally they just say a blind man or whatever. He names his name, Blind Bartimaeus. Like everybody knows this guy. And that he came a leader in the church. This man, he didn't have sight, but he had insight into who the Messiah was. And he saw way more than those Pharisees and, and, and scribes and all of that because he recognized the Messiah. And he recognized that I'm going to follow him and obey him. The Pharisees and the Sadducees knew too. They were guilty because of the works that Jesus did. So as we honor him with our faith, as we grow, we don't want to be stumbled by him putting us in impossible situations. He's going to show his glory. He's going to come through. And you're going to be stretched. You're going to be um, basically developed in a way that you couldn't be developed any other way because he knows what's best for us. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Lord, we, we recognize that you are stretching us individually you're stretching us corporately as a church lord as we prepare to move we pray lord that you would be honored every step of the way we pray lord that we would get there and and recognize that you did it and that we can't point to any one person or people that you're the one that provided so we honor you with our faith god we want, we thank you in advance for providing for us we thank you for the time that we've been able to be here. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be flexible, to be movable. Anytime that you want to move us as a fellowship, we pray for a massive harvest of souls and many, many people discipled. Lord, we thank you that we're the church. You've, you've defined the church as those that are called out of this world. And that's who we are, Lord. So we could meet anywhere. You know that. And so we ask, God, that you would help us to have the right perspective related to this facility and that you would stretch our faith, and, and Lord, you would work in such a way, God, that the world would see how, how great you are and that you would be made famous. And we thank you for how you've worked in our lives this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.